Welcome to another episode of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery Podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and addict. As always, our mission is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms. The story of addiction and the road to recovery. Again, we're not affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step-based organizations or groups in any way. Today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing one of my dear friends, Mr. Josh Schnitzel. So we're going to welcome Josh. Hey, my name is Josh Schnitzel. I'm an alcoholic addict. All right. So a little bit of history of me and him and how we met. We met back in 2016. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, somewhere around there, right? So a little bit about how we met. First off, he's a big part of my recovery. He's a very important person and a pivotal person in my journey in the transformation that ultimately led me to where I am today and getting to do recovery um, together, right? So today he's going to share a little bit of his experience, strength, and hope, what it was like for us in prison finding recovery, what it was like in prison with us together when we weren't in recovery, which that's a whole nother thing. We could do an episode just on that, but we want to provide a little bit of substance with it as well. So we met, right? And uh, how we actually met, we were acquaintances. We would see each other on the yard. We would both be working out and we would see each other. We would say what's up, but we weren't really friends. Um, what ends up happening is, is he had a job at uh, Apache Junction College, right? And uh, it was one of the, it was it was a drop spot, right? Yeah, before that, though, it was um, the Coolidge one, the Coolidge College, Coolidge. Central Arizona College. So that's where it started, really. Yeah, so that's where it starts, right? So I end up running into a guy who wants to make some moves on the yard. And I remember that he worked there because we had talked briefly about it. And so I would say, hey, I'm going to introduce you to a guy. You can make the drop with him. There we go. So that's how it really started. And then what ends up happening is he starts making some drops, starts making some moves on the yard, and yeah. I become his point man. Yeah. I was yeah. A, I was a pretty good point man. And I got to be the plug. And you got to be I the got plug. To be the plug. And I was the point man, yeah. right? Yeah. Was I a good a, point man? Scale of one to ten. Well, when you weren't staring at my spoon, you were pretty good. You're <laughs> supposed to be watching for the cops. <laughs> well, listen, brother, I got a lazy eye. I'm doing both at the same time, brother. Don't worry about me. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I end up being his point man. And, um, you know, and so we, we it turns into a friendship, man. And and we, we become friends, right? And it's all ultimately it all starts. And, it, and it's crazy when I look at these things and I think about spirituality and the way I experience God and the people that he puts in my life. You know, sometimes we meet in a crazy way, but all the eye. I'm sorry. You thought it was the spice. Was that was funny. You thought it was the spice, bro. I had a lazy eye. It might have been a little bit of both. I don't know, man. It might have been. Yeah. And uh, that's what so gave you the lazy eye. that's what gave me the lazy eye, right? Yeah, and still funny. have it today. That was good. I can show you good. some childhood pictures of myself. That was funny, dude. That was pretty I funny. I mean, I'm funny sometimes, right? You're pretty funny. Dude. Oh, thank you, dude. And I you, think you're pretty funny. I'm pretty. I'm. I'm good to keep this one going a little bit funny. You don't have to be as professional with me. You okay. Know that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So yeah. we'll go half and half. Half and half. Like that relationship with a higher power, right? Like the that 50, coffee. Like the coffee, half and half, brother. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, we end up, uh, you know, starting uh, to make moves on the yard together, and you know, there's a couple stories that I really think of. You know, um, there was a time when we had some had made a drop and. You know, our drug of choice, both of us, is not meth. It's not our thing. We really don't choose to do it or even like to do it. And there was a point where we ended up coming up on some and and we we, we were right before the yard was closing. We're like, all right, we're going to sell this. We're not going to do it. Are you good? You're not doing it, right? And he, do he's like, I'm not going to do none, right? And so that's what he tells me. He tells me he's not going to do it. I'm not going to do one. I don't even like that shit. Yeah, we don't even like it. We're not going to do it. Yeah. Soon as the yard opens at 445 in the morning, I go first thing over to his house because, of course, I did some and I was up all night. 
And so I turned the corner, I bend the corner to where he lived in, in Baker in Baker Pod, and I turned the corner, and there he is. And I knew you did some, so now I could go ahead and admit that I did too. And the, so you weren't going to admit it? <laughs> I don't know. I'm probably not. <laughs> probably not. But I look at those things, and I think about that, and it's that mental obsession, the physical allergy. It's that baffling feature of addiction. It's the utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish, like it talks about in yeah. the big book in step one. It's the perfect example of powerlessness. Right. We don't want to do it. We're, we, we have everything in us. We don't want to do it. We, we That's not even our thing. We don't, but we can't not not do it. Yeah. And that's another prime example. And when we start to do our steps and we start to look over these things and we read the first 51 pages of the big book, he actually did his steps as a step working guy with NA, correct? first time yeah the first time he's been through multiple times he chooses to take his sponsees through both ways just depending on the individual um but when we look at the first 51 pages especially the big book it's for us to really diagnose ourselves. when i hear these things when i hear the baffling feature when i hear the powerlessness when i hear the mental obsession the physical allergy when i hear those things and i can relate them to experiences that's how i'm able to say yes i'm one of them too i must have this thing so i remember that um there was a point in time and i think this is pretty funny but there was a point in time where you had bought every single pill on the yard, uh, fentanyl strip on the yard, yeah. Xanax on the yard, any type of psych med, anything that would give you a mind, any mind altering substance for that matter. You had bought the whole yard for like three yeah, months up front. Tramadol. Uh, we had a buddy getting methadone. Only dude I've ever known that got methadone. Yeah, he's the only one. Rest too. in peace. Yeah. Yes, sir. No. And that was a sad thing. I mean, that guy ended up, you know, you know, DOC will basically uh, let you die before they want to treat you. And you had hep C really bad and they didn't want to treat him. They didn't want to treat him. It turned into cirrhosis. Yeah. Finally, they treated him for the hep C. At this point, the cirrhosis was so bad that he ended up dying. I actually lived with this guy and helped take care of him until he passed. And it's it's a pretty sad thing. And, and, when he's, we, one, and he's one of, of several. Several. I mean, the same thing happened to yeah. There's so many experiences, man, when we think about this and we see all these things happening around us and that is us and that will be us if we don't figure this thing out. And as we start to find recovery, we start to have some realizations and we start to really see that if we don't get there's only two choices, right? Um, one is to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the unconsciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could or the others to accept spiritual uh, spiritual life or find spiritual life a basis of life or else. Get busy living or get busy dying. There's that's the only two choices for guys like us. Let's not gloss over the fact though that you know I, I loved him and and he was a great dude, but um, he had cirrhosis for quite a while and he couldn't stop using either. Right, and he so stop using. That's, he was powerless over his addiction. And that's the powerlessness. We see the, the everything in our life where our health is declining. Right. We have hep C, we have all these things, but we're still using. And when we look at that, it's really the insanity and the powerlessness of our addiction. Yeah. But I thought that was funny. I remember that. I mean, everybody on the yard was pissed off because every time they would go approach these guys who were selling the, all the different things on the yard, they had told them that, that Josh had already bought all of them. And I still get offended if they even went and tried to get something. And then you'd be, <laughs> then you'd be offended, right? <laughs> so how is, is there anything how do you remember that period of time when you were making drops when you were making money when the locker was full when you had everything and people were coming to you and you know you could you had the ability i mean when you got what everybody wants you have the ability to call shots on the yard how did how was that period of time for you it was um it was just a, some more momentum for my ego and for my the, this false pride that i had built up in my head over the years um you know, I like being the man. I like when people pretend that they like me. Um, and, you know, I like having this this little bit of power that I can wield by 
being the dope man on the yard. Um, if, if you want to get high and, and you can't find the other 15 people on the yard that have it, then you got to <laughs> come to me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just, it was momentum for my ego. You know, I, I'm in a, a small pond, a big fish in a small pond, really. Um, and in my head, it was the whole bowl was mine <laughs> at the time. I mean, uh, I can't see much further than my immediate surroundings, you know. And just like everything, right? I mean, and when we're when we're in the game on the streets, when we're making money, when things are going good, everything goes so good till it goes so bad. Yeah. Your money's good till it's not good anymore. Even Scarface got shot up on on his belly. He did. Yeah. He did. He did. <laughs> and I was never that. He even went bad for Scarface, but sometimes we felt like we were. Yeah. I always like to say I'm like this fancy, like big time drug dealer. But the truth is, I wanted you to like me so much yeah. that I would basically give you the best prices just so you would come to me and you would like me. So I was always hustling backwards. Yeah. And you're Italian. Do you ever have uh, ambitions of being in the mafia? I'm wearing a tracksuit right now, brother. <laughs> what do you think? The Russian sweatpants. <laughs> what I'm wearing. Fila, brother. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, it goes so good till it goes so bad. And so you guys ended up getting busted. Do you remember what it was like when they came, they raided the hut, or they searched the hut? What was that like? Can you tell the story about that? There was a dude in my run um, that had been shooting speed for a long time. And uh, he was getting you know, weirder and weirder as time went on. And he was really getting sucked up and, um, and it was obvious and, and everybody thinks they're hiding from the cops. But the fact of the matter is not everybody's stupid. Um, and I mean, it doesn't take much to become a, a CO in the department of corrections, but um, once maybe in a, a GED once in a while, one will slip through that, that's uh, working his way through college. Maybe, I don't know, but um he, it was very apparent that this dude was getting high. And, and to this day, I actually don't know if uh, he had actually put a rig in the trash can or if the cop put it there, because I mean, it's hard to tell the word of an addict and he was swearing up and down that that hadn't been his. Um, and it was just laying right on top of the garbage can, which to me is kind of suspicious because uh, you know, like who just puts it on the top yeah. doesn't even try to hide it. Right. But anyway, regardless, what happened was they took us all. They, they tossed our whole run and they took us all up to the yard office. And um, and I I had just done a shot of, of, of black not too long before that. So I was pretty cool, calm and collective. And, and, and again, uh, this false pride and ego um, exalted in that. I liked being like in the in the thigh deep in the shit and still being like cool about Not it and everyone deal. else had been up for a few nights and they were tripping you know and like just freaking out and i was spinning around in the chair with the wheels on it and sliding back and forth but i already knew what what i was going to do i already knew that i wasn't going to ua um you know and i had some medical issues uh, with my prostate anyway and is that hold on that hold on same, hold on is that legit i've always wondered legit. for all these, that's legit yeah um i had several fingers stuck in my butt really i was on the yard by by doctors and um you know and how'd uh, that feel well i mean it wasn't the worst thing in the world <laughs> <laughs> you know he puts lube on it yeah okay all and, right yeah, uh, nice guy he is yeah huh? he was he was a yeah. sweetheart yeah <laughs> <laughs> and um and anyway i had been on some meds for it and, and it was an excuse it was a good excuse 
for me to use. And it was a good excuse for me to not worry about getting in trouble, but it didn't really work out this time like that. I, um, I mean, it had worked out previously for you, it right? It worked out. Yeah. It, yeah, had, it had worked it, out previously. Yeah. But uh, it depends on the disciplinary. Yeah. So he ends up getting busted, right? They end up UA and they ended up finding more paraphernalia and drugs in the run. And so everyone's in trouble. Well, everyone's, none of mine, though. None, none of them were yours, yeah, right? None of yours. None of okay. Better hidden than the rest. Oh, of better hidden. Oh, in the, in the safe. In the mat. Oh, in the mat. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Oh, I do. I do remember that. Yeah. And uh, so, just like everything, like I said, it goes so good till it goes so bad. And so, at this point, it goes all bad, right? But I want to back up a little bit further. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what led you up to this point, your childhood, um, the family dynamic, what what that looked up, what that looked like for you specifically. So, you grew up in Maryvale. So, what was it like growing up in in Maryvale? Um. I was a skinny white boy with glasses and, and big ears and um, and uh, had come had come from a family that had addiction in their genetics and um, pretty dysfunctional. You know, pretty. I, my parents loved me and, and they probably were doing the best with what they had, you know, um, so when you say that, doing the best of what they had, is that something that you always thought or did that take doing some step work, looking at some resentments, really looking at your part um, and everything that's led up to that? Is that when you come to that realization? Because I think it's, right. it, you know, we believe that we want to blame everybody else because it right. allows us to continue our negative behavior. Well, I knew my parents always loved me. I didn't really know what doing the best with what you had meant at that time. Um, but it, it, they were dysfunctional. And, and the weird thing about growing up like that is if that's what you know, then that's just the way it is. And and you don't really know too much different. Like you might have friends whose parents are functional um, members of society and, and take you to soccer practice and, and, you know, take you to, maybe to church or something. I didn't have that. And I didn't really know a lot of families like that. Um, but my, both my parents used um, my, my mom left my dad when I was very young, she got pregnant by someone else and left. And, uh, um, this started some abandonment issues and, um, I, I got lice in grade school. You know, you remember when they used to check you for lice yeah, sure. and, check the, uh, and, and I remember how embarrassed I was, um, having lice and, uh, they couldn't get a hold of my dad cause my dad was doing speed and, and running illegal guns. And, uh, he actually <laughs> had started running a prostitution ring out of, huh out of the house I lived in, I had four or five babysitters at every, any given time. My first um, kind of intimate or sexual experience was with um, these hookers really. And really? Um, yeah. And, huh. um, and that, that started leading to some issues later in life about how I perceived women. And, um, and again, we realized that in our sex inventory. So is yeah. it safe to say that your dad didn't make it to many parent teacher conference nights? Yeah, it would be safe to say that he, uh, one of my, Two of my earliest memories is, is a dude getting stabbed in my living room and blood all over the place and him screaming at me to go back to my room. And and then another memory is the neighbor um, pulled a shotgun at him and shot at him right in our front yard. And uh, I don't know if the dude missed on purpose. It was a shotgun. He was pretty close. So he probably missed on purpose. But, um, you know, he was making a point. And, and so uh, early on, I was witnessing this, this type of shit. And, um, and then my mom took me when I got the lice into an equally dysfunctional home where my mom and my stepdad were tweakers and uh and you know they'd be super loving and and fun when they were high and then as soon as the dope ran out 
not so much. So when we grow up in dysfunctional families, right? And and it's always this thing, it's like dysfunctional or functional. What is a functional family, right? Any yeah. family that has a, an addict in it. Cause I would always say I had a, I had a great, cause I did, I had it. My parents love me. They still love me. They're amazing. I have tons of support all over. They're, they're uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you just actually got the ability. You went over there, helped my parents with some electrical work. It really meant a lot to not only them, but me as well. And, uh, you know, so our parents are always like, what did I do wrong? And it's not always people that grow up in dysfunctional families. They don't end up doing multiple prison sentences of being ex. Not everybody does. Not just because you grow up in a, in a great home, you have every opportunity. Does that mean you're going to be successful? Because we're, we have two different types of childhood, yet we still ended up in the same place. Yeah. And and the, and the point really being that, um, you know, I like what you said. What is functional? It's and it's. E- I, I grew up from a childhood that was easy to point fingers and blame. You know, to blame my childhood, to blame um, everything else but myself and all the external circumstances that I grew up with and the conditioning. Um, it, it made it. Maybe my childhood just made it easy to blame that. To to blame something other than than my own. So when we're seeing dysfunction in the home, right, we're seeing stabbings, we're seeing shootings, we're see, we're going from one family one to the mom's set to your mother's house, to your dad's house. Mm-hmm. We have the embarrassment that we're feeling when we get the license school, right? Glasses, right? You're living in Maryvale, which isn't, you know, the nicest fucking neighborhood to say the least, right? We're feeling guilt. We're feeling shame. We're feeling embarrassment. We're feeling regret. We're feeling less than. We're feeling all these things. So ultimately what that ends up leading into is us acting out. What kind of trouble did you get into uh, in, in, during those times in, in, in school and in grade school and high school and that whole period of time? What did the trouble look like for you? Let's run, let's run a couple down really quick. Um, I, I had started writing porn letters, um, uh, copying basically the stuff I was reading out of penthouse letters in seventh grade. Um, it's one of the girl's moms that I gave the girl – she was writing them too, but so you know we pass, so, you, too, so you pass but, uh, letters like uh, I think most kids porn in, letters and, and you're and, passing porn letters and they got caught and um and we <laughs> all got pulled up into the office and everybody admitted to theirs but I didn't and I was just like no it's not mine well the handwriting matches and well no oh, handwriting analysis yeah yeah you no. got the FBI involved yeah. in this thing dude CSI dude great no, letters I don't know great letters but um <clears throat> but uh, I got suspended for three days and as soon as my mom would leave. Um, to work in the morning, my stepdad would run in and um, and whoop me and then make me stand at the foot of my bed and stand up all day until my mom got home. But she didn't. He would and he would tell me that I was going to get it worse if I told my mom on him. Um, so that was one. Um, I, so, you ne- so, you know, you never miss leg day then, brother. I didn't miss leg day. I mean, you're always standing, you're always give, yeah, you're yeah. always giving me a Standard shit about deliver. leg day. Standard deliver. And, and that's why <laughs> you've been doing that since you were a young kid. Yeah, you might be right, dude, but mine aren't much more shapely than yours. Okay, bro. All right. So what other kind of trouble did you get into? Um, I, eighth grade graduation, I stole a bunch of golf carts um, from the Maryville golf course. Again, the two dudes that I stole, we got drunk at a party and a graduation party and um, the dude's parents had bought the liquor. And um, after the party, we went, me and two other guys went and stole these golf carts. How many golf carts? Ten altogether. Ten. Okay. So these first charges were criminal damage, burglary and theft. And, theft. and uh, they were all three felonies. And uh, but before I went to court for those I went and robbed the dude's house who, who told on me for that. <laughs> One of the other of guys that was, that was involved. And then I got caught for that too. 
So they stacked these cases on me. Um, so by the time I was a freshman, I was already in the system. Did you go to juvenile? I, not at first. I got put on probation, uh, intense probation, and actually just about finished intense probation and was being transferred to regular probation um, when I caught some dirty UAs. And um, then I went to jail for a while. Okay. So you guys, so now we're already, so, you know, when we really think about um, identifying with, with an addict, we know what the book says, right? But clinically they say that if you could answer uh, three specific questions, then it's safe to say that you're an addict, right? One of them is continued use despite negative consequences, yep. a poor control over stopping and poor control over the amount you take um, and when you start. So if check. you can check all three of those boxes, I mean, you're, you're stealing golf carts, you're getting on probe, you're on IPS in high school, Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's what still it looks like high. and still getting high. Right. And then yeah. you start selling drugs as well. Um, probably my sophomore year, I went to an alternative school, Bostrom High School. Woo, woo. Oh, uh, oh, 20, oh. 27th Avenue in Osborne. And um, we could smoke on campus. And I started selling joints and nickel bags of weed. And then later, LSD, uh, a little bit of Sherm. Um, yeah. Okay. So the family dynamic is it's all over the place. We got divorce, we got trauma. Um, we got negative consequences. We got arrests, we got probation, IPS, we got all these things happening. Um, what's it like with, uh, you have one brother. Yeah. You have one brother. What can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with your brother, how old he is, what it was like? Did you guys do everything together? Pretty much. Um, he was, he was three years younger than me. Um, and you know, obviously we didn't have a lot of structured parenting, uh, so I kind of had taken on the role of being a parent, which is ironic because, you know, I, I, I needed parenting, right? <laughs> I needed some structure, you know, I needed some discipline and, um, and, uh, so I, I would take on that role and then just really build a bunch of resentment from my brother. Um, he had a lot of resentment and, um, I gave him his first line of speed when he was in fifth grade. And I, mm. I just discovered speed and I was like, this is the most awesome thing ever. Um, I've got, I've, I stayed up all night making all these plans and, and having epiphanies about the structure of the universe. And, um, you know, and, and I wanted to, sh I wanted to share it with them. Oh, so you were doing service work really young yeah, then, huh? You're right, dude. Wow. Yeah, we can Practice. look at it that way. Yeah, yeah. That's how we choose to, it's all about attachments, right? And perceptions. Perceptions and attachments, yeah. right? So that's yeah. how we choose to look at it today. Um, so we, we start to see these things, right. And ultimately, you know, it's the continued progression of your illness, right. The disease, the progression, it gets, continues to get worse and worse and worse. It definitely talks about that in step one, it gets worse, never better. And if left untreated causes death, but the consequences continue to pile up. How many prison sentences have you done? Four. I've been through Alhambra six times, but I've done four. How many years total do you have in the system? Um, a decade, about just less than 10, nine and a half somewhere in between nine and a half and 10. So we got just about the same amount of time in. Yeah. Right. Okay. So let's, I want to hear a little bit, because, you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear it. So the previous senses before you found recovery and became the man you are today and got to this point to where we're sitting here right now. Um, it's truly a miracle that both of us are able to do this. And I'm honored to have you on. What was each of those prison senses? Like, I, I mean, just, just the basics, like what would happen during the time, what would you tell yourself of how, you know, cause everybody says, I'm not, I'm not coming back. Right. I'm not going to mm -hmm. do this. I got, I'm going to get a job. I got it all figured out, but I haven't changed anything. I haven't done anything different. Yeah. And again, that's insanity expecting different results. So I'm curious to kind of hear, I think it's important that everybody hears what you would tell yourself, what you would do in prison briefly. And then what would happen when you would get out each of those times? 
well, the first time, you know, I had only got a year and um, I discovered this thing called push-ups and, oh, and, and skull crushers and, and pull-ups. And um, so I got a little bit healthier. I was eating regularly um, and I didn't really get money from home. So getting high was kind of a sporadic thing. Because um, there's consequences of not paying your bills. Yeah, but yeah, there's consequences that never really stopped me. But okay. um, all right. But uh, me but I did want to. I did start off wanting to be a solid dude. So like a, you know, I, I had kind of attached to an older cat right away who was kind of showing me the ropes. And the first one I, um, the first one I attached to was Rick, um, on our yard. Defoya. Yep, Rick yeah. Defoya, uh-huh. and, and he kind of ran down the get down for me. He didn't get high. Um, but he wasn't opposed to me smoking a little bit of weed. And uh, and I did tell myself all those things that I'm not coming back, you know, but I never did tell myself that I was going to stop getting high. Mm. And um, so I tell my, myself these things. I'm going to get a job, you know, I, um, I'm going to get my own place to live and, and I'm not coming back. But I, I don't know if I ever fully believed it. Um, so that was the first time. And I got out and um, – <clears throat> I came, I came from Douglas and they dropped me off off of 31st Avenue and Van Buren. Is that um, the Greyhound? It was a shuttle. It uh-huh. was like a shuttle that comes from Agua Prieta, whatever. Yeah, Agua whatever Prieta. Towns right yeah, there, Douglas. Yeah. And um, and Jimmy Jack's was a place that I frequented uh, before I went in. And let me just say, if you guys are listening and you know where Jimmy Jack's is at. Yeah. Get a big book, get a sponsor, work the steps. Yeah, yeah. yeah if, you, if you knew, if you were like, damn, Jimmy Jacks, call me. <laughs> if you've ever had to buy a drink or just some type of food just to meet the plug in the parking yeah, lot, yeah. you definitely need to get a sponsor. Yeah, well, I just want a cup of ice, so is that cool? Because I only got 10 bucks. <laughs> and you know, you know what that means. Yeah, you know what that's for. I had a guy down there that I used to call my uncle Golden. Um, he lived down there. And he was always kind of happy to see me, but he was a homeless dude and he'd score dope for me and he kind of watch out for me when I went down there. And um, I used to kind of exult in the fact that I was a, a white boy that could be walking around at two in the morning down on Van Buren um, up in Mini Park and uh, smoking crack and shooting dope. And um, But anyway, the shuttle dropped me off there. And uh, I called my brother from a payphone. I had bought immediately a 32-ounce um natural light and and some hot wings and i've been looking forward to those two things the the whole fucking nine months that i did or something like hot wings and 40 Um, couldn't even get a four to 40 but i call my brother and he uh he's like dude don't buy nothing i told him where i was at don't buy nothing i'll I'll be down there in a minute and uh, he came and picked me up in my dad's car and before i got home i was shooting cocaine and heroin on the freeway And so we always tell ourselves, it's like, what's going to be different. And, you know, some people do really well in prison, right? There's two different types of people that do uh, prison time, right? And so my first prison sentence, I did three and a half years and I didn't get high, right? I hadn't created an attachment with doing prison time and getting high. That's pretty good. And then what ends up happening is, is that I have this false sense that now I got things figured out. And then same thing, right? And then talks about that in the big book. It says uh, we fall victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline qualifies him to get high like other men. And so we fall victim to that. And before you even get home, you're already getting high. And I'm sure you told yourself multiple times, right, that I'm going to do different. I don't want to come back to prison. This isn't fun. I don't want to be like these OGs. I'm not going to do it. 
Yeah. And here we are doing right. then, yeah. you know, like I said, I never really believed that, you know, this, this thing could be just as well called the disease of perception or the disease of delusion, because I built a belief system in my head. Um, my ego's built something to make me comfortable with the fact that I can't stop getting high. And that worked for a long time. Um, and, and I, I had always gotten high in prison, but I never gotten strung out. So I had this, this belief that, you know, I might not be a completely an addict because I could maintain um, still being uh, what we call solid wood on the yard. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't run up bills that I couldn't pay. Um, I worked out all the time. Uh, a lot of times I do what I was told. And I liked when you had said, as long as you had the ability to commit violence and you paid your bills, you were solid. Yeah, you're wood. solid. You're that's in. funny. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's super <laughs> it's the truth, true. right? It's yeah. the truth. And, um, yeah. And so that's, I was shooting dope before I even got home. And so ultimately that starts the cycle all over again. So then it ends up, how long does it take before you actually, um, get back to prison for this would be your second prison sentence? I had been arrested um, and went to county a few times in between, but it was somewhere around a year. So about a year later. OK, there. so about a year later, you go back to prison. So what was it like uh, going back to prison for the second time? How did that make you feel? Because that's the question, right? The question is, how does it make you feel? Because my whole life, I thought that if I just stopped using drugs, uh, that things were going to get better. Right. But the problem was when I would stop using because drugs is a solution. Don't think, don't feel, don't care. Right. So when I get sober, I feel again, I feel all the pain from the prison senses and the trauma and the, and the failed relationships and the shoulda, the coulda, the wouldas. I feel all those things again. So how did it feel for you going back to prison for your second time? What was that like? So let me start off by saying um, when I was getting out, I knew I wasn't getting I, I knew I wasn't getting sober. I knew I was going to get high. So somewhere in between that shuttle ride. um back to Phoenix, I I was living in a lot of fear up to the point I got out that, that I wouldn't be able to pass parole. Um, so the plan was to go check in with the PO the first time. That would give me 30 days before they put out a warrant because I was just going to bounce. I wasn't even going to try doing parole. Mm -hmm. and, and as soon as I really had made that decision, I felt some relief because then it, it quelled the fear in my head. And I just had to kind of get good with knowing that um, – I was going to go back to kill my number. But then to me, it was like, well, once I kill my number, I'll be good. You know, after that, I'll be, everything will be all right. And, um, <clears throat> because it's probation's fault. It's the Maryvale police's fault. It's, yeah, it's, it's the guy bullshit, who's, it, yeah. You know, yeah. I did my time. Yeah. Shit. Leave me alone now. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's yeah. all, so we blame everybody else. And when we, when we really look over our lives and really think about these things, you know, it's always, if I only would have turned right, if the, if I had a real lawyer, uh, which that didn't work for me. My parents always got me real lawyers and that never worked, but you should have called them. Yeah. I would have picked up the phone for you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so we look at these things, man, and it's just, it's this constant cycle. It's everybody else's fault. Um, it's being full of fear and negative emotions that ultimately lead us to the point where we just, we don't care anymore. It says in the big book, making a supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. Yeah. And sometimes we'll, we'll sacrifice whatever, our freedom, our health, our families, our relationships. Um, you know, it's, it's just that constant, constant cycle. Yeah. So you go back to prison for the second time and you kill your number. Yeah. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. I, uh, and I was well on that track. And, um, so I went to jail a few times for some minor shit, uh, shoplifting and after I killed my number. So I went back, 
I went back to Florence West, the violator jar, and it killed my number. Um, during that time, so when I got picked up on the parole violation, I had been up, I went back to a methadone clinic. I had been up all night smoking crack and drinking. Mm. Um, I had robbed a house that night where I found a bunch, uh, someone I knew went to the methadone clinic and I knew when, when they wouldn't be home and I'd stole a bunch of methadone pills and clonopin and Xanax and a bunch of the, those, those goodies. And that's exactly what I was going there for. And, um, I went to go panhandle a little bit of more money to, to get some more rock and, and uh, a security guard wanted to see my ID and called the cops on me. So they picked me up a little bit down the street after I'd bounced. I was panhandling in Fry's parking lot on Hatcher and Cape Creek. Mm, great neighborhood. And, um, and they pulled up and, and they, uh, they, they yelled some random name and get on the ground. And um, then they picked me up, cuffed me and ran my name. And I just seen the, the screen in the car flashing Alhambra, Alhambra, Alhambra. And, uh, and you know, I'm just like, fuck, man. All right, well, here we go. Well, I had a warrant. I knew I was going back at that time, but um, I had been running around with my brother for the last three months. He had prior, prior had moved to Mexico to stay with my aunt and uncle and try to um, clean up his life. But his addiction um, kind of caused a lot of chaos down there. He would drink at work and my uncle had got fed up with it. So he left and, and came up here and um, he, he came back right after I'd went to prison the first time. And, um, I remember the cop, I asked the cop if he'd take me to my dad's house and I, so I could drop off my wallet and shit. Cause if I was going to Alhambra, you know, I, I want, didn't want to risk not getting my shit back. And we pulled up into my dad's uh, front yard and he came out. My dad was drinking heavily at the time and, and he wasn't surprised. He didn't look surprised that a cop car was pulling up to the front with his son in it. Um, yeah, that shit didn't surprise him. And, mm. um, I asked the cop if I could take some meds and, uh, he said, yeah, I said, I'm, I might not get my meds for a few days if I'm going out hammer. And he said, yeah. So I had my dad go in the house and he came out with a bottle of pills and he poured some out in his hand. And there was like four different kinds of pills in this bottle. Um, if I remember correctly, I know there was Xanax bars, some Clonopin, some Seroquel and probably some other stupid psych med. And, um, my dad asked me how many, and I said two of the white ones and and, and two of the blue ones or green ones. Oh, like, so is took, this like the Matrix? Or dude, you I, took them all. You took both I pills. Took, I took yeah. I had taken two Xanny bars and two Clonopins, and I'd been up all night smoking crack and drinking. I had taken my methadone, someone else's methadone. So by the time I got to Alhambra, I couldn't even sit in a chair. I couldn't. I was so fucked up that they took me into the psych office um, <clears throat> and asked me, "What'd you take?" And I said, uh, just the, the the Xanax I'm prescribed, and, and I've been drinking a little bit. And they wanted me to UA in a cup, and um, I started pissing in the cup in the office, and I pissed all over the floor. And mm. and the cop was screaming at me to go to the to the bathroom and do it. And they put me in flamenco, which yeah, is they the, don't like that. They don't the, like that. Yeah, it's the psych ward at uh, Alhambra, and they kept me there for ten days on a benzo taper. And um, they ended up keeping me for 52 days in, in Alhambra um, where I'd started a mini protest by banging and flooding my cell. Finally, they got me to Florence West. And a few days later, um, I got called to the chaplain's office. And uh, <clears throat> um, at first I made this fucking joke like, oh, now you got to be saved when you go to Alhambra. 
But halfway up there, I realized that, you know, they don't call you up there for something good. And uh, and I thought maybe my mom or my dad had passed away. And I, I went in there and they said, we have some bad news. Um, your brother was found dead of an overdose. So <clears throat> I was kind of in shock. I didn't really believe it much. Um, <clears throat> he had been on his way to Michigan. Uh, we had, before I got arrested, we had bought a couple pounds of weed and vacuum sealed them. And we knew a guy in Michigan that would uh, buy it from us for double the price. And, <clears throat> and um, uh, it found him dead on the Greyhound bus um, of a heroin and clonopin overdose. He, he went without me because um, I got arrested on this violation. So I felt a lot of guilt from that. And, uh, and I, I wouldn't say I was suicidal, but I really had no interest in if I lived or died. And, and, uh, it really just exasperated my addiction. And, um, as soon as I got back, I started asking around if I could get a paper and within two days, um, I was getting high again. And, and I, in the meantime, my stepmom was like, please, Josh, you got to swear you'll stop. You, this is that frothy emotional appeal it talks about. Mm-hmm. Please, Josh, you got to stop getting high. Please promise me you're going to stop. We can't take this. We can't do this anymore. Yeah, Linda, I swear to God, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I swear to God. And we're both crying and my dad's crying. And um, mm-hmm. I felt probably more helpless and miserable than I've ever felt in my life. I don't even really know how what words could to use that could actually describe that shit. And to this day, it's the worst thing that's ever happened in my life. But really it just catapulted me into, it talks about rocketing in the fourth dimension in the book and recovery. This kind of catapulted and rocketed me into the fourth dimension of addiction um, on the streets. And uh, yeah, and that's what happened. So, um, so ultimately, you know, these, these traumas happen, these, the, I mean, horrible circumstances and events happen and, and just like everything that happens to us over our lives, right? We experience these things. It's the gift of pain and desperation. How many times do we feel that pain? Yeah. How many times do we see the need to make a change? How many times did it hurt so bad? But what ends up happening is we don't use it as a motivator. We don't get those feet moving. Sometimes we do, but minimally, and it turns into relief and not recovery. But a lot of times, like you said, it rockets us into the fourth dimension of addiction. And so ultimately that leads you back to prison. You go back to prison again and you find yourself, um, the prison sense that I met you on, your very last one, you know, where we met at North Unit. How, how much time did you get then? Um, and how much time did you have left when we met? Okay, so I... I'll just back up a second because the point of your question was how did I feel this my second bit? Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't really feel shit. I didn't, I was very numb to it because I really didn't give a shit about anything anymore. Um, and I was okay with going back. So I met you. I got, I got picked up again in 2015 since 2006. I had not been able to go six months without being arrested. Um, and a lot of times it'd just be for 30, 45 days in county jail for shoplifting or some bullshit. But uh, I hadn't went six months without being arrested. And I think I made it a year and a half between my third and fourth prison sentence. And um, I went to uh, I went to East Unit and I immediately started making booze. And because that's how I how I do it on mm-hmm. the yard. I, I that's that my hustle is the most illegal shit you can do in prison really. And, um, um, 
So ultimately, you get you catch some tickets. You have an episode on Spice. I remember you telling me way that back was, when that was my third time down. Yeah, and they helicopter. that was your third time. You got helicoptered off the yard. Yeah, you're at East Unit too. He, he wigs out on the yard. They yeah. helicopter him out of there. Yeah, they, doesn't remember any of it. He goes ahead and puts me in the ambulance. He goes, "By the way, you're on report lost." <laughs> and says the cop told me. Yeah. And so that that's your you know your nickname, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of people will know you by that. Um, so ultimately, all these things start to happen. You end up getting some tickets at East Unit. I mean, you've been on some some pretty pretty decent hard level yards. You've been on Steiner. I went to Maury, Maury. From, from East Unit. So I I actually it started my third bit at North Unit. Was there for a little over a year. Um, went to East Unit. Made it there for two months before I got bumped up again and went to Maury. And that's a four yard. So that's a. Yeah. I mean, that's probably one of the most dangerous yards in the system. Um, and you know, that's what, and so ultimately we start to see the places that it's taken us, you know, we're doing whole time. We're still in in prison. We're getting in trouble. We're catching tickets. We're losing privileges. No good time. No good time. We're losing all of our good time. And when I really look at those, I have these fears, the fears of going back to prison, fear of my parents dying, not being proud of me, fear of some, my daughter calling someone else dad, fear of my wife leaving. I have all these fears, but my actions feed right into those fears. And so I'm completely consumed by fear. And it exasperates the problem. Yeah. Because it's the disease of fear again, you know, it mm-hmm. could just as well be called that. And all's it, all that did to me at the time was build my ego. Mm-hmm. So when I had been in prison only to a two yard um, or three yard, I could say, you know, I felt tougher than people who had just been on a two yard. And when I get out on the streets, well, I'd been to a th- three yard. And then uh, now I'd made it to a four yard um, where I had a little bit of fear going in, but, Everyone assured me I'd be fine and just be yourself, which, which is funny because who I didn't really know who myself was, but um, um, yeah. So it just would it would just compound into ego and and make me feel like more than I was, and 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 these things would make it easier for me to convince other people who I was um, when I really didn't know who I was myself. And so that's always the question. It's like, who are you? What's your purpose? Tell me who you are. I remember my sponsor uh, asked me that and I had no idea. Yeah. Um, and so through working a program, through working the steps, through realizing some big chunks of truth about ourselves, through doing all these things, we start to see who we are and exactly what we need to change and yeah. what we don't want to be. And we can identify the problem because the goal today is that there's a problem because problems will always still happen. That's life. But how quick does it take us to get to the solution? Yeah.